Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Dan North, writer, speaker, originator of Behaviour Driven Development. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So we're here on a beautiful day here in London out on a terrace with some building noise in the background for those listening on iTunes so uh, I hope you'll bear with but uh, very excited to have you here today at Dan. So I thought we'd start off for those who aren't aware of you and your work just with a, yeah. a brief summary of, of I suppose how you first came to prominence and that was with behaviour driven development so what's that about especially for people who aren't particularly familiar with software development and the process okay so let, let, let's let's assume that people aren't that um, familiar with software development at all and start there so I've been in tech I guess IT for about 30 years uh, um, and for the last 18 of those thereabouts um, in the world of uh, what we call agile software development uh, um, which is a well, it started out as a blanket term for a whole bunch of agile methods um, in the 90s, um, software methods where people were trying to get work done. And so right. anyone who was writing software in the, in the 90s, you tended to have these massive projects of like multi-year programs. You might release every two years was kind of pretty much you know, leading edge kind of thing in, in big enterprises. And there are a load of folks that were involved in this just thinking there's got to be a better way, you know? And so... A number of these little software methods sprung up, and they had a number of things in common. They were usually fairly small teams. The idea was that you would work in small chunks and get feedback based on those small chunks, which meant that it was lower risk to fund these things. Uh, you tended to have solid engineering practices, really good software practices. And um, so, and that was kind of like the, the model. And there were a number of these that sprang up. Uh, there was Crystal, there was DSDM, there was XP, there was Scrum, there was Adaptive, there was Feature Driven, there was a whole load of these different things. And a chap called Robert Martin kind of knew a bunch of these folks and he, he got them together and he said, look, we've got a lot more in common than we have different. Let's come up with a, a framing statement for all the things we've got in common. Then we've got basically a brand. And so uh, um, they called the brand Agile, and they okay. called the document that kind of tied them all together the Agile Manifesto. And it's a values-based manifesto, which I quite like. It says things like um, human beings, people and interactions, are more important than processes and tools. You need processes and tools, but people are kind of more important. So that movement, as I say, had its roots in the mid to late 90s. Um, but then formalized in about 2001. And so I was using um, some of these early agile methods in the probably 99, 2000, thereabouts, extreme programming, uh, much like yourself. That's right, yeah, and, that's uh, a common <laughs> heritage of extreme programming. Exactly. Um, Which but, isn't sort of programming on a surfboard or while skydiving. No, or, no, or up a mountain with an ironing board, nothing like that. Uh, um, so no, extreme programming was, was, was one of these software methods, a chap called Kent Beck. Um, was working at Chrysler, in fact, on a not very exciting project. It was an accounting system. Uh, uh, but he had, he had nine of his buddies with him, and they had a, what they called an on-site customer. So there was a, a domain expert sitting in the team with them, and they found that they were able to build really, really solid software very quickly by having you know, very 
disciplined engineering practices, collaborating really well as a team, and having this on-site expert who could who could uh, tell them exactly what she wanted because she knew exactly what the system had to do. And so that was one of the one of the methods that came that came to the table for that came with this agile thing. Anyway, so I'm. Uh, I wasn't an originator of these things. I was a very early adopter. So I was, I was one of the first consumers of the Agile Manifesto, if you like. Uh, um, and then around 2003, 2004, I was working for a company called ThoughtWorks. Um, so I joined them in 2002 in, in London. I was there for eight years. And ThoughtWorks, interesting company. They, they were very much pioneers of Agile methods. So their chief scientist, called Martin Fowler, um, was one of the signatories of this Agile Manifesto. In fact, in the grainy photo of them all standing in this room, he's the guy at the whiteboard with the holding the marker pen. Uh, um, so these were, as a company, they were very early adopters and pioneers of these methods. And part of my job was going into big companies and coaching this stuff. So doing software delivery, helping them build you know, banking systems and telco systems and whatever we were doing. But at the same time, teaching the, their engineers how to do some of these things. And I found that particularly there's a, there's a technique called test-driven development. And for those who don't know, test-driven development is a, it's a way of designing software. Um, it's quite clever. So what you do is you, you, you write a client for this software as though it exists. Right, you, you know the software doesn't exist. You, you write a client for it as though it exists, and you go. Well, when what, you say what a, client, what do you mean? When you want to say client, so I'm going to write some software that's going to use the application I'm building. So I'm building, say, uh, something that's going to do a calculation. So I write before I even think about the calculation. I write the software that's going to consume that calculation, and that tells me how I should talk to it. So it's what, what's called the API, application programming interface. So, so the so. By writing a kind of model client, by writing some example code against this non-existent thing, it gives me an idea of the shape I need to make it. And it's, it's funny, with the arc of time, you kind of see all these different metaphors. Um, something that Amazon famously does whenever they're about to, whenever they're embarking on a new product idea, they start with the press release. So this is an internal Amazon product development thing, is they say, right, before we do anything, Okay, Richard, let's imagine it's done and we're going to do the press release and the press release is going to be amazing. It's going to be like a few paragraphs of why this thing's really cool. And they start with that. There isn't a product yet, but they start with the press release and then they do work until the press release is true and then they go with it. So it's kind of like that, <laughs> but the press release is code. And so you write, but did you notice how I didn't use the word test at any point in the last... Yeah, so it's called test-driven development and Ken Beck, amazing, amazing, very smart guy, really bad at naming things, right? So, so it's nothing to do with testing, it turns out. It's, it's actually a design um, uh, discipline, if you like, or set of design disciplines. So the idea is that the two of us would be working together, typically pair programming, and that's another thing that they advocate, is um, engineers working in pairs solving a problem, because most software isn't typing, most software's solving problems. And so the two of us will be thinking about this code we're going to write doesn't exist yet. And we say, okay, well, what does it need to look like? What shape should it be? Well, let's start by writing something that would use it. And then we can discuss what that looks like. And that will tell us what shape the code needs to be. So this whole discipline is called test room development. I'm one of the, that's one of the things I was teaching or coaching. And I found that developers were getting really, really tied up in knots about like is it a unit test a functional test an integration test is it uh what kind of any way we we shouldn't be writing tests we have testers for that you know we're programmers 
And meanwhile, down the hall, the testers are saying, oh, don't let the programmers write tests. They don't know what they're doing. And, and I realized they were basically getting hung up on the language. Like the technique itself, once they got it, it was easy. They were just, they were getting hung up on the, so, so I just tried describing test-driven development by deleting the word test. So I'm gonna just talk about, and so I ended up calling it behavior-driven development. So I said, we're gonna describe, we're gonna write some code that describes the behavior of the system we want. And we're gonna use those examples, and these words like examples and scenarios. I'm gonna think of these different scenarios that I might use this code in. And that tells me how to design it. It shows me how to build it. And so that was the kind of the origins of behavior-driven development, BDD. And then what I realized is, and this was with a chap called Chris Matz, who was a um, business analyst at ThoughtWorks in around the same time I was there, 2003, 2006, that kind of time. Very smart lad. And he, um, he's gotten all into kind of product management and all kinds of really cool things now. But he was there as a business analyst and I was telling him about behavior-driven development and, and the idea that you would start with examples and then use the examples to basically define the, the system that you wanted. And he said, well, that just sounds like analysis. So, and we both had this like aha moment where we went, wait a minute, we're doing analysis, but in code, that's kind of cool. And so we realized there was a, a, a kind of secondary audience, if you like, for these examples, which were the rest of the software team. So. In, in the XP kind of world, you've just got programmers. So the whole XP, you know, XP teams are programmers, but their definition of program is broader than the thing we're used to, right? So a programmer does testing, does analysis, does design, does uh, domain you know, research, all that kind of stuff. It's just we call them programmers. In bigger organizations, you tend to have different disciplines in a team, so you'll have programmers, actual you know, developers kind of thing, and you also have testers, analysts, um, delivery managers, all kind of product managers, that kind of stuff. And so what we did with BDD was started bringing these people into the conversation as well. So BDD became a kind of a, a generalized form, if you like, of test-driven development. So now you've got the testers involved in thinking about these code examples right from the get-go before you've even done or as, as a part of the analysis activity so so what we were trying to break was the um, the traditional kind of analysts do analysis then designers do design then programmers do programming and finally testers do testing and that's usually the order you get the information in as a programmer you don't know anything about it until all that's happened yeah so we were saying this seems weird to do this as a linear process when it's clearly a collaborative, iterative, emergent activity. Well, which is interesting, just to, just to interrupt, because I remember one of the reasons, because I was started out as a programmer, and one of the reasons I left programming was because I felt so frustrated at being X number of steps down the chain. Mm -hmm. And actually, had perhaps had the role been broader from the beginning, I may have been you know, more, more interested in continuing down that path, yeah. Well, and, and the role being broader, but also the structures. So, uh, and I won't, I won't name names, it'd be fairly obvious why. There was a bank that I did some interviewing in a few years ago and as a consultant, they said, can you come in and kind of help us figure out our process? We seem to be kind of getting stuck in development and we don't know why. And I met like um, representatives of the development process. So I met a couple of architects and a couple of analysts and a couple of developers and a couple of testers and basically had the same conversation about five times, which was, uh, as I said to the analysts, you know, so what do you do here? They said, oh, well, you know, we have to lock down the requirements really, really well. It's like, why is that? Well, because they're all idiots, right? And so as long as the requirements are solid, then at least we're going to be okay. I was like, okay, right. And I met the architects. I said, what do you do? I said, oh, mate, 
I, I need to make sure that the design, the architecture is absolutely rock solid. Why is that? Well, the, the requirements are usually rubbish and the programmers aren't great, so I've got to... Okay, so you're basically keeping... Yeah, yeah, it's me keeping it all going. Right. Met the developers. Oh, well, let me tell you, the architecture's rubbish, the design's rubbish, the, the, the requirements are really vague, so luckily we know how the bank works. And, and every single one of these... And, and what I was seeing was tribalism. So what mm. happens is when you're in silos, you necessarily, you, well, not necessarily, but as, as, a, as a human, you, you, we create tribes. And one of the characteristics of a tribe is what's called othering. So, so our tribe is awesome, everyone else are a bunch of idiots. You know, and we're great. And that's our sense of identity, is our greatness. Yeah? Mm. And so what, it didn't, what, what, I, what I managed not to ask any of these people, and I really wanted to, by about the fourth one of these conversations was like so everyone else here's an idiot yes <laughs> and you came through the same interview process that they did <laughs> awkward pause <laughs> but yeah and so so you know it, to an extent it doesn't matter what kind of person you are if you're dropped into that system of work you'll end up doing that and so what I wanted to do was start monkeying around with the system of work itself and that's what BDD was a part of, and as I've kind of gone further, I mean, this is like 15 years ago now, <laughs> so, right. uh, so things have moved on. Uh, um, but like that was the beginning of a journey for me of an arc I'm looking out, of, as I say, for like you know more than a decade of understanding how um, people interact in systems of work in order to achieve an, an outcome, and how we limit ourselves by kind of modeling these systems as these linear processes where in fact they're typically highly collaborative generative processes and by creating these 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 sequences um, we then create silos within those sequences and create tribes within those silos and now we've ended up causing ourselves more work and more pain so there's the the, the deming thing about the you know the the, the system defines the behavior mm. So yeah, so, so BDD was a, an early attempt to coach TDD, to get teams collaborating. And as it grew, I mean, one of the things I was really excited about is that I wasn't really, you know, I started this thing, but very quickly other people picked it up and ran with it. And I think a lot of the success of BDD is I haven't been, <laughs> you know, I haven't made it my thing. It's been, right. you know, there's a, a wonderful developer coach called Liz Keogh, um, also in London, who's just brilliant. I've known her for many years. And she was a really early adopter of BDD and she's gone off and done her own stuff with it. She's gotten very into um, Ken Evan and Dave Snowden's mm -hmm. kind of complexity work. And I'm a huge fan of that. I know you are as well. Uh, um, and tying those things together, so complexity and BDD, and she has this lovely thing called Capability Red. And Capability Red is her own kind of mini methodology, if you like, of understanding uncertainty. So when we're looking at something, you, we look at it across an arc of like, has anyone done this before? If no one's done this before, we really are striking new ground. But maybe someone's done it, but they don't work here. So has someone out in the world done this before, but not us? And then to the other end of the scale, you know, have we done this before ourselves? And so, so based on where you are on that spectrum, determines degree of uncertainty, determines how much stuff you, you uh, how much slack you need to give yourself in order to, to learn things and get them wrong. So, and then Chris Matz and a lovely Dutch chap called Olaf Marsen um, developed Real Options, which is applying uh, kind of uncertainty and BDD type thinking to uh, 
financial options and turning that into all the decisions you make in your life. You can model them as options and options have value. You know, like the, the decision of where and when to have lunch is an option. Okay. It's mad. It's really cool stuff. Right, and so, so it's sort of in loads and loads of different directions. Uh, sort of wet dream of how to manage their life. So, yeah, 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 really. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's just brilliant the way they've done it. Um, actually, they wrote a, a business graphic novel called Commitment, um, which is basically it's a management book, but as a graphic novel, which is rather wonderful. Uh, and um, yeah, so people have gone off and, and, and done really interesting. And BDD now has its own conference. Okay. Which is, yeah, that was never the plan. Right? So, so there's a BDD exchange. In fact, this year it's just been renamed because it's broader than BDD, really. Um, but yeah, so, so there's lots of people doing really interesting things with it. But I remember, I remember reading on one of your blogs that you said you consciously de- decided not to turn it into, as you described, perhaps a, a certification Ponzi scheme or you've not formalised it. And yeah. So, yeah, yeah talk, talk us through why you haven't gone down that route. Um, so there were two things that happened about the same time, um, just complete coincidence, I guess. One was, um, so I was looking at BDD and I was seriously thinking what do I want to do with it. I, as I say, I never set out to make a thing. It just it happened to be successful. It happened to be a way that other people could, a method that other people could use for coaching in the same context I was coaching it. And I was getting really good feedback from it, so that was great. Um, and then it was like, okay, what do we do with this? And I kind of saw two different models, if you like, and obviously there's a whole spectrum of models, but they're like, imagine two points on this, on this scale. At one end, you've got Scrum. So Scrum is a certification scheme. Uh, um, it's, again, if you look back in history, Scrum started in um, 93, 94, something like that, like early, early 90s, as a way to get work done. Mm. And again, and this is in software space. Right? In the yeah, software yeah. space, yeah. And, and it really was revolutionary. I mean, so some of the early um, proponents of Scrum, uh, a lady called Martine Devos, lovely Belgian lady, uh, um, she was working in the public sector in Belgium, and she was I think, in the education sector. And... Um, and she basically, she, she's, quite a, she's quite an intimidating lady to meet. Like she's, I mean, she's gorgeous, but she's like, really kind of, you don't want to mess with her. And she's in this software team and clearly frustrated and, you know, looking, staring down another two-year project plan or whatever. And she said, right, this isn't okay. We're going to deliver something in 12 weeks. Right, we're going to ship something in 12 weeks, even if it kills us. And they're like, you can't do anything in 12 weeks. And she said, I know, but we're going to have something live in 12 weeks and we're not going to fly blind like we usually do. We're going to sprint for six weeks, right? Pause, course correct. Another six weeks and we're going to do it. So that's where the idea of sprinting came from. So the first sprints were six weeks long, right? And then we're going to release something. And so they did. They did this, 12 week, this six-week thing and then they kind of course corrected a bit and then they did another six weeks. And what I love about it is... And this, again, this goes to some of the stuff that Snowden's done since. If you think about, like, enabling constraints. Right. So you introduce a constraint that breaks the existing system, that breaks the paradigm, and that means you have to do new things. So if I'm thinking, okay, so Rich and I are working on this project and we've got, like, 18 months to do a release, we can probably work on the same feature for eight months. That's quite normal, yeah? Well, if we've got 12 weeks to get something live and anyway I have to demonstrate something in six weeks because I'm slightly scared, right? I can't be thinking eight-month uh, eight features. I have to think much, much finer-grained. So they did. They said, well, what could we build in six weeks? What could we reasonably build in six weeks? 
And they said, okay, well, what, how does work normally work? Well, work normally works with, you know, the analysts do their stuff and then the architects do their stuff and then the whatever. Well, we, we can't wait that long. So, what, what can, well, let's, let's get everyone together that we need and in one place. So no one mandated co-located teams, cross-functional teams. They just said six weeks. Okay. And so because of that, well, I need to get people together. So now you start deriving these things from first principles. What do we do on a two-year project? We have steering every month. Right, and every month we go into a room and we say, well, what's happened in the last month? Well, if we've got six weeks, we're going to land one of those, right? possibly two, depending on timing. Yeah? That's not going to be enough right, to steer six weeks. What if we did it every week? Well, that's still only six touch points, right? instead of like 20 or whatever. We should probably do this every day. Yeah? Well, we just invented the stand-up. Right? Okay. You know, no one said there will be a stand-up. What they said is you've got six weeks and you better know what you're doing. Well, we better check in with each other pretty much every day then because things are going to be moving much faster than we're used to. And so all of these practices kind of emerged based on this one enabling constraint. There will be something in six weeks to demonstrate. There will be something in 12 weeks to release. And so, and the first release was rubbish. It was tiny. <laughs> But it was non-zero. Yeah. And then the second release, a couple of sprints after that, there was much more because now they're getting better at it. And, and, and so this model kind of evolved. Brilliant, except what they then did is they said, right, let's sell certification of this. And so certification is practice-based because you can't really certify principles, right? So it's practice-based. They said, well, these are the things that are in Scrum. And you've got the Scrum Guide and the Scrum Handbook and the whatever else, a certified Scrum Master. And that model then sat there for, it, it's been the same class for 25 years. 25 years. Right, if you've been in software for less than 25 years, Scrum has always existed. It's insane. Right. Yeah. And it hasn't changed. Oh no, they, they changed one word. Right, they changed one word. You don't have sprint commitments anymore, you have sprint forecasts. That's the change. And so what you've got is a model that was, really was game changing 25 years ago, is now vestigial, at best. Right, it's it's an interesting historical artifact. That's why I'm going way off on a tangent. No, right? I love it. Yeah, this so, is so, 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 no, <laughs> I, I get clearer. This is an elaboration on what I've read. So well, well, and and so so this is so now we've got one in the spectrum is um, when you codify something, you also lock it in, unless you also codify a way to change it. Mm. Right, and you see this in the US. Right, mm. they codified the right to bear arms, and now school shootings. Right? And clearly there's a correlation there, and they're going, well, it's the Constitution, we can't change it. Well, you can change it. There's already been dozens of amendments, because that's what an amendment is, right? You can go back and change stuff, but no. Once you lock something and you lock it in, back of an envelope calculation, there are over 500,000 people with Scrum certificates. Um, a bunch of those are now on an annual recurring revenue model, because your, your Scrum certificate expires at the end of a year. Um, and so let's say you spend a couple of thousand bucks on that. That's a billion dollar industry. Billion dollars for going along to spend two days learning about something that worked 25 years ago. Brilliant, right? So that's, that's one model and it's clearly very lucrative, but it doesn't really advance the, the, the art of software any. The other model, or another model, another data point is Kent Beck with XP and he wrote the XP book, XP Explained. Um, and what he wrote was an experience report. What he wrote was, I got together with some really smart developers and a brilliant domain expert, and we built this system, and this is what we did. Right? We based our interactions with each other on these 
values of simplicity, feedback, courage, communication. These things really matter to us. And here are some practices that we developed during this that, that work really well for us. Things like continuous integration, things like pair programming, things like um, uh, working in small, what they call iterations, those kind of things. And so he wrote the, the, the kind of the handbook of what they did. It was an experience report. And then he said, oh, you could make a load of money out of this. And he's like, he, he, it's a wonderful quote. He says, uh, if, if something like, he says, if you need more than, it's almost trying to sell, if, if someone's describing a methodology to you that requires more than post-its, they're trying to sell you something. And I just went, yeah, okay, I, I, I can get behind that. Um, and so other people wrote XP books as well. Ron Jeffries wrote a great one. Martin Fowler wrote a great one um, about different aspects of XP. So there's one about planning. There's one about the experience report of other people using XP called XP installed. And all this whole series of books. And Kent didn't make a bean off those. And he's, you know, he's done okay. He's a successful consultant. He's, he's spent, famously spent a bunch of time at Facebook teaching them how to write software. Um, but what he's never done is monetized XP. And because of that, it's evolved. It's grown. It's become, and I think it's become much richer for it. And so now I had to kind of choose where on that spectrum I wanted to be. And, and I figured already people like Chris Matz, Liz Keogh, Gojko Ajic, um, these folks are doing really interesting things with like this idea that I had. And I didn't want to stop that. That was pretty exciting for me. And, and I figured, good luck to them. And also around this time, because I'm rubbish at writing books, I'm currently five years into failing to write a book about some patterns and things I've been working on recently called Software Faster. We can maybe talk about that. But around this time, Goiko Ajit um, wrote a book called Bridging the Communication Gap. Um, and then he followed that up with another book uh, called um, Specification by Example. And these two books, I just thought they were a really, really brilliant description of BDD. He captured the essence of BDD. And people are going, oh, Dan, you're going to write a BDD book. I'm like, don't need to. Look at those. They're really good. <laughs> so now other people are carrying this idea forward. And so that's where I chose to be. So I said, I don't want to monetize this, you know, um, or I don't want to lock it in, you know. And, and for, you know, now, like for me, it's, and it's interesting because people talk, ask me about BDD a lot because it's a thing. Uh, I, I describe it as my first album, right? <laughs> you know, it's a thing I, I think I was really excited about you know, 10, 15 years ago. I still am excited about it. I still, um, I still value it. I still think its principles are just as valid as they were then because it's evolved, because it's grown. Uh, but yeah, I never wanted to kind of lock it down. But I've been doing lots of other fun things since then. Right. And, and I think if you become, you know, the scrum person, and you see this, like the, the original scrum people are still the scrum people. And it's almost like you're now locked into this fate of going playing around the and- Playing the same old hits. Playing the same old hits. Um, yeah. the, but that are, the thing is they're not universal hits. They're, they're very much of a style. It's like being slayed, right? <laughs> or, or, you know, it's like, it's like playing 70s hits again and again, yeah. And it's, it sounds like a 70s hit. It's not universal, right? Oh, right. And, it's, and it's frustrating um, because then there's a certain kind of middle manager and a certain kind of organization, and there's lots and lots of them, that want to buy a prescriptive solution to a problem they have. And Scrum certification fits really nicely in that sweet spot. Yeah. So there are still companies all over the world 
embarking on what they think of as an agile transformation. And the first thing they're going to do is Andy Hunt, who, the, who co-wrote the Pragmatic Programmer, he calls it sheep dip training. You know, we're just going to get all of them on, just sheep dip them all in. And if you look at the roles they have in Scrum, and again, so the roles are vestigial. The role, I, I'm beating up on Scrum. I'm an enormous fan of what Scrum did. I'm enormously um, frustrated about what Scrum has become. So the roles in Scrum were amazing, right? So when you're, so remember I was saying like you bring all these people together and they never worked together before. And they were in those tribes I was describing. Yeah. So not only have I got a developer working with an analyst and, a, and a maybe a tester, and they haven't really worked together before, they're coming in from a mutual position of mistrust. Right, you're the enemy, right? And we've just been stuck in a team together. And I'm like really kind of not happy about that. So this role of a scrum master was about coaching the team to work as a team. And they're gonna get into all kinds of mischief. And so it's about coaching, it's about removing obstacles, it's about getting the team collaborating. And it's a full-time gig, right? <laughs> and what Martine used to do, Martine Devos, is she would rotate that role through the team. So there wasn't a scrum master who was you know, anointed the scrum master. It was, okay, well, you're gonna be the scrum master for the next couple of sprints. Okay, great, and then I'm gonna be the scrum master because it's a really crappy gig. You're going off and doing all the admin and the running around and all those kind of things. Um, and now, again, play this forward 20 years, most teams are put together cross-functionally. Most people in their career have mostly worked cross-functionally. It's a solved problem, or it's a non-problem. You don't have people coming together from this mutual mistrust thing because they've always worked in cross-functional teams. Um, likewise, this product owner role. So the product owner originally was a coaching role. It said, okay, I've got a programmer who thinks my job is taking requirements and turning them into code. I'm a tester who thinks my job is taking code and running through a test script and test plans and filing bug reports and so on. Right? As an analyst, my job is to go and talk to people and produce a BRD, business requirement document mm -hmm. or whatever. And the product owner's role was to say, right, no, we're all building a product. All of us <laughs> are involved in building a product, so we need to make product trade-offs. So we've got to think about usability, but we've also got to think about the non-functional stuff. We've got to think about who our customers are, what do we want to see in the next sprint or the next release or whatever. And the team hadn't really thought like that before. Now, again, you go into most teams and they know the product they're building. They work in the bank and they know how the bank processes work. And a developer or a tester in the team is just as likely to have good product ideas as a specialist, someone over there. So these roles haven't just become vestigial, they've become like the tail wagging the dog. So originally we had a team trying to collaborate and the product owner would help collaborate on the product. Now the product owner is basically this person calling the shots and, and giving them a laundry list of features to, and then they become what they call feature factories. And so you get this anti-pattern of the product owner being a, 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 an obstacle between the team and the real customer. What would that explain anti-pattern for people? So, so anti-pattern, so, so a... Um, uh, What's great? Well, an anti-pattern is 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 something to be avoided. <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe it. So it's it's a it's a pattern. It's a um, a phenomenon that you would see time and again. And when you see that phenomenon, you know something is amiss. And it's called an anti-pattern because there's a structure to it, and there's typically a counter to it. So the anti-pattern of the, the the way to counter the anti-pattern of this product owner as as a gatekeeper is to remove the product owner, is to, is to, well, actually is to flip that role into a collaboration role. So I've seen good product owners and good product owners, or good product managers, I prefer the role product manager, 
their role really is to help the team understand the product and help the customer understand what the product can do, if you like, what the, what the art of the possible. And so product management then is about strategy and about reading the market, about understanding the customer and understanding you know, what, what, what the, what the uh, business context is and those kind of things. And that's really valuable. I mean, product management as a discipline is enormously valuable. This vestigial product owner role kind of ferrying information backwards and forwards, not so much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you've got these two roles. It's Scrum Master, who's basically, well, and if you think Scrum Master, you're a coach, right? You're a, a, one of the hats you wear, you're a professional yes. coach. Coaching, by definition, is helping someone be the best them they can be, right? So you're the expert in asking questions, they're the expert in them, right? That's the whole relationship that you co-create. Um, and likewise, a Scrum Master role is very much a collaborative, you know, getting the team working well together role. The people who mostly become Scrum Masters in companies were traditional project managers. We've been so, sheep oh, dipped. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going scrum, so all my project managers get sheep dipped, go off on a two-day residential class and come back as, as, as scrum masters. So the psychometrics are the complete opposite. Right? You know, these people are traditionally, they've become successful by managing Gantt charts and resource leveling and, and making sure that, that your 0.6 of your 60% uh, allocated to this project and 20% allocated to this and 18% allocated to this and I'm managing your timesheet and allocate. That's their world, right? And so they're exactly not the right people who should be coaching. Likewise, business analysts in a traditional organization have been set up to write documents, write requirements. What they're not is facilitators of conversations, mostly. You know, and they're the people who go off and become certified product owners. So there, there are, there's definitely a place for these roles, right? So for, for some kind of coaching role in teams that are new to anything, they're going to want some help. But making that a, a pretending that you can learn that in two days is ridiculous. Um, and likewise, product management, pretending you can learn that in two days is equally ridiculous. And yet we then use that as a metric of, of agile transformation is what proportion of our, you know, insert role X have been sheep dipped and turned into these new people. So that frustrates me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can see it. And it's, uh, I think the other point that I'm hearing here is that because when people go on these courses, it may, it may be that some of the ideas have, have become dated, but also you're not forcing people to think from first principles, right? You're, you're saying, go implement this rather than think about how you would apply these principles in your context text. Absolutely, and, and, and I'll say it again, like the principles behind Scrum, that underpin Scrum, which largely come from lean operations, theory of constraints, you know, gold rat, those kind of folks, um, are universal, are timeless, uh, focusing on flow of value rather than busyness of people, changes the whole economic model of an organization. Um, you shift from what's called cost accounting to throughput accounting. So cost accounting is the idea that uh, I have a big pot of money and I have vertical slices of my organization and I allocate money to those slices and within that the heads of those allocate the money and it sort of trickles down. And I identify parts of my organization as profit centers, the things that make money, my sales divisions, and then areas that are cost centers, that, that cost money, like my engineering functions and my whatever else. And that model made sense in, a, in an industrial era where organizations got too big for you to see everything that was going on. 
So once you didn't know what was going on, I now I've now got you know, Richard is in charge of my you know his his my, my 700 marketing people right in my marketing division, and I've got you know Dan's looking after the, the thousand people in the engineering function or whatever. That's a full time job, right? And just knowing what's going on in there is a full time job. And information without computers, information takes time to trickle up. And so typically at, at, at a kind of senior level you're making decisions based on information that's maybe two or three months trailing indicators. And you need to make decisions. And your people need to make decisions and their people need to make decisions. So we need to have a framework for making decisions. And in that context, value is so distant in space and time from when the work happens, I don't even consider it as a lever anymore. So the only lever I've got is cost. So I drive down, I double down on cost, yeah. So that's cost accounting. Throughput accounting says any work is value creating, right? So you're either doing work that's value creating. So if I'm a product company, I'm making my product, or I'm doing work that's value enabling. So I'm maybe designing a new product that I'm then going to sell, or I'm making it. I'm building tools internally to make it easier to do work. So that's all value enabling, right? So value creating, building my building and shipping my product, um, value enabling, which is all of the work that makes that easier, or waste. Anything that isn't those is basically is, is non-value-adding work. And so once you start looking through this much, much simpler lens, you have a sort of value stream, which is where you connect up all of the different pieces of work that go to make product, go to make money. Um, and that value stream then is itself, um, that's what you manage. So now you're managing typically across an organization rather than up and down it. And I have now a direct relationship between work that happens and value. Now, it might not be a non-linear relationship. So we're looking again at, um, in terms of Kinevian and complexity mm. theory. It's more often than not, the front end of it is complex. So there's like, it's emergent, it's dynamic. Um, it's, um, yeah, it has dynamic complexity. And then the back end of it tends to be just complicated. So it has lots of different pieces. So for instance, with software, um, the analysis, the design, the testing, the development, the product, man all of that stuff is very much emergent and cyclical and, and iterative and, and generative. Once I've got my code, building it, deploying it, running it, that should be a really, that's a, that's a production line. Right? If I, each time I build my code, I get different code, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> each time I deploy it onto servers, I get different deployments, that's bad. I want all of this to be completely, um, uh, what's the word? Deterministic. So everything up here is a bit squishy, and I manage it the way I manage squishy work, and everything down here is deterministic, and I manage it the way I manage deterministic work. And I'm very deliberate about the transition from one to the other. Okay. Once I understand that my work works in that way, I now have a value as a lever as well as cost. And so throughput accounting only has three, three metrics, three, three numbers in it. Okay, it was much, much simpler. The cost accounting is really complicated. It's got loads and loads and loads of different uh, um, values and functions and uh, calculations and whatever else. Uh, throughput accounting, three things. It says you have inventory, which is money you've spent on stuff you're going to sell. <laughs> uh, throughput, stuff you've sold. <laughs> Operating cost, how much it costs to turn inventory into throughput. That's it. That's the whole of throughput accounting, right? And so then if you're running any organization, any profit, you know, any commercial organization, the entire goal of managing that 
organization is minimize inventory. So carry as little stuff as you can, maximize throughput, make as much money out of it as you can, manage operating cost, right? So don't let it spiral out of control. And as long as you're doing those things, you're basically winning. If you're doing those better than your competitor, you're winning more, right? And so when you start introducing those ideas into these big, complicated, hierarchical organizations, everything changes. The problem is it's really difficult to introduce those very simple ideas because so much of the structure, history, culture, power structures within the organization are predicated on this cost accounting model. So I don't know, how do yeah. we get there? No, that's good. No, yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And, you, and it reminds me of what you talk about in terms of transforming organizations that you effectively you break everything you start with the with the people in terms of how people have organized which we've talked about and this move to collaboration and coaching mm -hmm. and then you you work through different facets of all of, of the organization and progressively break everything right so yeah well what you're alluding to there is a lovely there's a chap called richard dernal um who's one of my favorite lean um practitioners so he's done a whole bunch of different roles he he's he's interesting because he came into software from outside now, most lean folks I see in software, they're kind of they're software people. And they've gone, oh, lean looks interesting. Let's go get some lean, right? And, ah, right, so I remember where we came. Well, I'm popping the stack in my head. So you were talking about practices versus underlying values and principles. So what we ended up doing was you know, value stream mapping and spaghetti charts and uh, uh, five whys and Kanban and all of these. So basically just like methody stuff and practice stuff. And Rich Donald didn't start there, he started at Ford. So it turns out Ford has a really uh, rich, lean operations background. And I didn't know, I mean, do you think of Ford as being... Well, that's right, well, they were the, one of the pioneers of lean, weren't they? Or a lot of the principles that we well, became known as lean. by accident. Yeah. So what happened was, um, so Toyota's like the, you know, the, the, the famous pioneer in, in, in Japan. And all these car manufacturers share parts, right? Because basically a hubcap's a hubcap, yeah? And so what was happening was uh, Toyota were taking deliveries from Ford and Ford would send stuff in big trucks and, they, and, and Toyota was saying, yeah, this thing with all the big trucks, that's not really working for us. So what we need to do is teach you how to deliver things in much smaller amounts, smaller batches. And Ford were like, don't know how to do that. And so Toyota said, no, that's fine. So they rented a big chunk of their kind of floor space in the, in the Ford factory. So Toyota are now paying Ford to be in Ford's shop, teaching Ford how to do lean operations to supply them, right? And they're like, well, so you're paying us to make us more competitive. And I said, yeah, we'll still win because <laughs> you're Ford. Yeah. And, so, and so they did this and, and they, they set up basically a lean supply chain for supplying Toyota. Now a bunch of, oh, this is the 50s, 60s, I guess. Um, a load of folks at Ford looked at this and went, this is the future. Pretty sure this is the future. Let's start. So they started a lean operations practice in Ford. And Rich is probably second or third generation of that. So, you know, it's not, it's still not how Ford works. Um, I suspect it whatever will be. But there's certainly there's parts of it. There's, there's a real kind of uh, desire to move in that direction. But so he's come out of automotive and he wanders into software and he's like, you guys are a mess. How can you, how can you be getting anything done here? Yeah. And, uh, and his, he's got this lovely phrase, he calls it being stuck in the tool age. So we're in the, we've got these tools, like we've got you know, um, 
uh, value stream mapping as a tool, Kanban's a tool, we've got all these tools that we're just kind of, and you say, well, you don't know why you're using these things, you're just using them. And it is a banging, you know, was it the, the, um, the cargo cult thing where you put your mm. coconut shells over your ears because you think that they are um, headphones. Do you know this? Oh, right. No, this well, I've actually shared it before, but share it. So, oh, so, yeah, so, so, yeah. So, so this was um, on the Pacific Islands after the Second World War. Um, some anthropologists, and there's a, there's a, I'm sure I can find a source for this, but there's some, some anthropologists went back to look at these islands and see what impact having American air bases on these Pacific Islands had had on the, on the inhabitants of these islands. And they went back and they found uh, some tribes were, they'd set up rituals. So they, they had like, um, they'd built out of uh, cane and whatever else, a conning tower, like a, a tower to sit on. And they'd made headphones out of coconut shells, coconut halves, and they would sit on the conning tower with the things. And so they said, well, what, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're, we're making the boxes arrive. Because what they'd seen is that there'd be these the, the, the American troop, uh, troops there were, were there with their things on, and these these planes would fly and they'd offload these cargo uh, um, goods and then they'd fly off again and they were like we want that to happen so we and they called them cargo cults uh, uh, because they they'd, they'd seen the practices and they were mimicking the practices assuming that that's how you made the thing happen and it's the kind of you know, the tail wagging the dog type of thing. Mm. And it's the same thing in, in, well, exactly the same thing with certification. You know, uh, um, organizations that are successful have small collaborative teams. Therefore, if we get small teams, we'll be successful. Or organizations that are successful have a scrum master. Yeah, have, have scrum masters. Owner. And well, yeah. well you know, in, in, back in the 90s, they, sold, they told a load of really good stories about this thing called scrum and they had, and so, well, and then it becomes a, a, um, a parity thing. It's like everyone else is doing scrum, so we probably should, jump on that too and like well you know we, we, we just need to do that just to stay current now let alone to, to get, get a competitive advantage but yeah so, so I'm working with Rich uh, he joined ThoughtWorks for a while and I've been using lean stuff since uh, early 90s I, I came across a thing called TQM Total Quality Management which was yet another attempt by American business schools to mimic Japanese lean culture and getting it horribly wrong but I, I didn't know this but I learned a lot of the kind of the core um, lean principles like waste, the different kinds of waste uh, um, and, and flow and those kind of things. And then I started working with it, and I've been using this I think it's about 15 years or something, started working with Rich Dernal and had that, I'm sure you've had this in your life, where you have that moment where you start working with someone and you go, I know nothing. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm basically starting over here. <laughs> it's like, I am such an idiot. Yeah, I thought I had this down. No, not even close. Right. And it was brilliant, terrifying, but brilliant. I spent six months working with this guy and just learning it all over again. And it was stuff that you know you know, but you've mm. forgotten. Mm. So you know, I know it's about people. I know it's about devolving responsibility to people. I know it's that the people closest to the work make the decisions. I know all those things. wasn't doing any of it. I was doing all the tool stuff. And so anyway, Rich, one of the things he did, he wrote this very lovely blog post it was a really light article, but it's just full of lovely knowledge. And so I stole it and started telling people about it. And it's a six-stage model of how organizations change. And, and he wrote it basically from his experiences. This is a thing that I've seen again and again in organizations. And I use it to coach kind of execs. I use it to coach CIOs and people. 
uh, because it tells them what's going to happen in their organization. So when they start to see all this stuff exploding, they're like, oh, no, this is right, isn't it? This is supposed to happen. This is the sound of progress. This isn't something I should lock down. And he says, so in order then, he says, so number one, the people break. So we introduce new practices, new ideas, and people are going, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what we do. Um, you know, I don't know who this Richard is. Get him out of the building. He's coming <laughs> in. He's preaching all this weird <laughs> stuff. Go away. Move on. I know yeah. that one. Um, and, but they come around fairly quickly because what you're talking about kind of works and they try it and they get these quick wins and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, there might be something to this. So that's your stage one is the people breaking. Stage two, the tools break. So this is all my management tools. So the tools like cost accounting, tools like Gantt charts, tools like resource leveling, tools like uh, slicing someone across seven different projects, right? 70-page um, steering group presentations. Yeah, 70 exactly. Or well, steering groups. <laughs> you know, a lot of those tools um, that used to help me do my control, my sort of cost accounting controls, are exactly counter to something that wants to be going across them. Yeah. And so they start to break. And then step three, governance, right? Which is essentially tools at a larger scale. So how do I do, so by the time you've got the tools and the people working, you've basically got team scale flow, which is kind of cool. But that's, you know, the, the agile folks solved this in the 90s. That's, that's nothing new. Where it gets interesting is when I now have groups of teams, like a program made up of, you know, 100 people or something in a bunch of teams or portfolios made up of groups of programs and a whole bunch of different initiatives going on and trade-offs and all those sorts of things. So governance at that level, is our money safe? What are we spending it on? What are our controls? You know, how do we, how do we make good trade? All those kind of um, governance controls start to fail. Governance breaks. Step four out of six, nearly there. Step four, the customer breaks. So what does that mean? That means in, like I said, in XP, you've got this woman who understands everything about the accounting system. She's like head of accounting or something. And she's like, this is exactly what I need it to do. No, don't worry about that. We won't need this, but this is a governance thing and this is a, a compliance thing. And she just knew all the rules. And so she's got this team of very talented people sitting around her and she's saying, this is what I want. And they're saying, here you go. Okay, that's great. That's team scale delivery. When you scale up to like a couple of hundred people, across a series of programs, your customer is 50 shouty people, right? With different agendas, different lines of budget or whatever, if you're still in a cost-accounted world, all screaming at each other, all screaming at you, um, trying to get stuff done, right? So that model, <laughs> you need to have an approach to that model. Yeah, you need to start thinking about that. Once you start bringing that customer back into, into, into line, if you like, or in, un, under, under the new model, under our new flow-based model, um, then the money breaks. I mean, the money already broke, but the money breaks properly. So what I mean by the money is how funding works from the top down. So from very early on, because you're working much more iteratively, you can incrementally fund things. It becomes like venture funding, kind of drip funding. But even though you have that option, uh, at a corporate level, we still like to sign off multi-million dollar programs over a number of years, not least because ego, right? Not least because you want to be the person who was associated with a $10 million rewrite of that core system, right? Because there's no glory in being the person who signed off 50K a month for a couple of years to do exactly the same thing, <laughs> which was much lower risk, worked faster, was more successful, cost the bank less, whatever. 
There's no glory in that. I, in fact, I remember there was a <laughs> programme I worked on where they produced trophies celebrating the sign-off of this huge figure. Wow. And the project itself went down in history, and I won't name the, the client, as being a massive failure and waste of money, like famous, famously wasteful. Wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was exactly you could see the egos at play and the sharing of trophies for the side. Well, I, I, I have a lovely counterexample of that. Chris Matz again, um, who's just really good at this. So he was working as an analyst um, at ThoughtWorks, uh, working for a large company which will remain unnamed, on a fifty million pound trophy program kind of thing. And he was there. He was like the lead analyst on it, and he was looking at. It, he's going. These pieces don't add up. There's a big diagram and all these things. He said, even if we deliver all these pieces, that doesn't solve the problem that you want to spend 50 million solving. And they went, shut up, Chris. He said, he said, but, he said but look, but look there's, a, there's a 20 million pound hole in the middle of this, right? You've, you've, you've got this big hole here that you, shut up, Chris. And so, so, and this is one of those like wonderful. So he sends an email to his boss you know, at the company um, outlining why he thinks there's this 20 million pound hole in his 50 million pound program. And it turns out that his boss has gone on vacation, randomly. And so this email pops up to his boss, who's CFO. CFO looks at this and he says, basically sends an email that says, if I do not hear within 72 hours why this is all going to work, I'm shutting this down. <laughs> 72 hours later, he's shut down a 50 million pound programme. Good for him. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, but imagine they hadn't. Mm. You know, it would have been another... Oh. Well, we don't have to imagine, there's plenty of examples. Yeah, plenty of examples. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly, you don't have to imagine. Let's look at many of them. And, and it takes a, a huge amount of courage to be the person that says there's a massive hole in that. You know, because you know you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with some... Quite, quite powerful people, quite you know, huge egos and that kind of stuff. And that's, 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 that's a challenge. So shifting that culture to say, you know, to that more collaborative um, achievement and being part of a team of people that builds an amazing organization. It does happen when it happens, it's great. ING Bank is a lovely, there's a whole series of stories there. There's um, a Dutch guy, Henk Kolk, wonderful name, Henk Kolk. He's, he's this, uh, and he was their chief architect or something there for a, for a number of years. I was very instrumental in shifting them. And, and again, very regulated, you know, Dutch bank. And Euro probably experienced a number of these breaks because we got to break money, right? And then Yes. Well, and that's number five. Yeah, and then yeah. it's number six. And finally, now you break the organization. And this is where we realize that we've been the wrong shape all along. And we need to genuinely restructure along value streamlines and value chains, which is kind of streams of streams, if you like, but you start to get more complex structures, you can still flow value through them. But now, rather than looking at that as a management structure, which, which it needs to be in order to manage effectively and eliminate waste and maximize throughput and all those things, it also becomes your financial structures. So we fund along value chains and we align, and so the lines of business are along value chains. And so at the end of those value chains, you have your customer and your customer has needs that you're meeting or jobs to be done or whatever your metaphor is. And your goal as an organization is to enable those jobs to be done. And now you've got front to back through the whole organization. Everyone is either directly delivering value to that thing or enabling people to deliver value to that thing.
and that's the whole organization, your HR, your finance, your operations, your uh, infrastructure, your technology, uh, IT people, um, your warehouse, your, you know, everyone in the organization, sales, marketing, product management, everyone's job is understand the customer, meet the customer's need, or make it easier to do one of those things. Right? And, and, you, and you get much more transparency. Now, what that tends to do is polarize people. You get the kind of people who wanted to do that all along, who are like, oh, this is fantastic, I can get work done. And you get the kind of people who see their identity as being the kind of the gatekeepers. And I see this with PMOs a lot, so the Program Management Office. You, they, 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 they very much divide. You get the PMOs who are like, no, but I am in control, and I need to see these figures and cost accounting and blah. And you get the PMOs who are, my favorite PMO um, uh, lead, his, his basic his opening line to me, he says, uh, he says, so what do you do here then, PMO? He says, uh, my job is to get out of everyone's way. I was like, you get this. <laughs> and in fact, his job, he said his job is to get the organization out of everyone's way. You know, you're trying to get something done, there's an organization in the way, how do we just get that out of the way so you can get stuff done? That's the PMO's job. Hmm. It's, it's, it's enabling flow at a macro scale so that at an individual value stream level, the, all of the stoplights ahead of you are already green. And that's a very different way of thinking about PMO than we are the gatekeepers, we are the controls, we are the... Yeah, and I suppose that, and that's an example of a lot of those central roles with a high degree of formal authority... Mm-hmm tend to be the ones that, yeah. uh, that often shift the most, don't they, as they, as they go through this transition to more, to more agile working. Yeah, that's the, they're the ones that are definitely the, the, the definition of those roles changes. So there's a bank I'm working with at the moment, a German bank, and they're doing some really cool stuff. So they are, so they got their, what they call the controls people, which is you know, uh, regulatory, compliance, security, all of the, typically the people at the end of the line with the checklists, <laughs> none shall pass got them in a room with a bunch of the lead engineers and this is usually a fairly adversarial relationship and we kind of reframed it we said no these people aren't trying to stop you they're trying to make it safe to be a bank if we can work within these constraints that make it safe to be a bank we can go as fast as we like because we know we're safe the problem is to go fast in terms of controls is an engineering problem not a controls problem Mm. so how do I for instance set up my development world, my development pipeline, so that all the information I need is self-evidencing. I should be able to, based on my automated build, or based on my automated release, tell you every single thing that's changed in this release. I can find out from the commit logs through to, I connect the commit logs back to my tests and back to my requirements, and I can pull down the requirements, and I can populate a Word document and say, here's the change log. Right? That should be fully automated. And in fact, then it's impossible to release something that doesn't have a fully automated change log. So you're, you're using the controls now as enabling constraints again. Right, okay, yeah. back to Dave Snowden. Back to Dave Snowden. Yeah. Uh, it always comes back to Snowden and Goldrat, <laughs> right? <laughs> and for people who don't know, Goldrat wrote, uh, wrote the, the goal, goal and, um, and was a great management thinker in the 20th, early 21st century. Um, developed a model called Theory of Constraints, which is a way of, it's a management model over flow, if you like. So once you've got a flow-based organization, how do you manage that and optimize for flow? Yeah. And he has a model called Theory of Constraints. The other great thinker, I think, in this space is Don Reinertsen, who 
when most people think about lean, they think about lean manufacturing, um, which is like Toyota production system, and they think of lean supply, which is like supply chain management. Or maybe lean startup now for the newer generation. Well, and this yeah. is the thing, is, is that there's a whole load of other lean stuff, um, which is which car are we going to build? Right? So uh, Toyota famously wasn't first to market with a hybrid. Do you know who was first to market with a hybrid? No. Ford. <laughs> Ford, in the modern era, because uh, I think it was a, um, Mercedes or someone built a hybrid car in 1898. <laughs> this is a lovely old picture of a hybrid car. But no, in the modern age, uh, there's a Ford, I can't remember the name of it, but it tanked. Um, and then second to market. Chrysler, something about that. Honda. Honda, okay. Right. No one even knows. And then, and then the Prius wasn't even designed as, as a hybrid car. that story, right? right? Yeah, yeah. It was designed as just the next generation family compact hatchback and so they, and they pivoted right they said okay we're going to need to make this because it's got all bling in it because people wanted bling and they said no people don't want bling they want efficient right so we need to make it hybrid so they dropped a hybrid engine in it but because they're so brilliant at operationalizing a product they could then ship in huge quantities at very high quality in a way that their competitors couldn't Hmm. And so the ability to iterate very, very quickly on product ideas is all the stuff that happens upstream of manufacturing. And that's where Don Reinertsen focuses in what's called lean product development. And lean product development still has the same underlying values, if you like, of it's about people and it's about waste. But waste in a product development context is not discovery, is, is not surprises. Whereas waste in a manufacturing context is surprises. They're like polar opposites. So in manufacturing, I want exactly the same thing again and again and again. In product development, I want different things every single time. Otherwise, I'm not developing products. Mm. I'm not discovering. And so you bring all these worlds together. So you have, um, so you know, Kinevin and complexity theory and understanding which parts of your world are emergent and adaptive and which parts of your world are uh, deterministic and um, uh, reducible have reducible complexity and understand that you need to manage those differently and then you kind of overlay onto that you've got lean manufacturing that happens on that side and lean product development that happens on this side so you've got your Toyota stuff here and you've got your Don Reinertsen stuff here and then finally you look at this whole model as a flow based management thing and that's gold wrap so you bring all these ideas and kind of overlay them and it depends where you are in the organisation which people you're having that conversation with or sorry which types mm. of conversation you're having mm. with those people so at, a, at an exec level, they could probably care less about how individual teams are structured. Right. But they do understand that value flows through the organization and that if we can reduce what's called the cost of delay, how, how long it takes to operationalize and turn something into throughput, turn it yeah. into money, uh, they get that money sooner. Yeah. Now, the trade-off there is to make, do that safely in a way that doesn't put the organization at risk, and that's where the controls come back in, and yeah. the enabling constraints, and the Snowden stuff. Yes. Yeah. And so now we start to design a system of work yeah. which is optimized for safe flow of value. Right. Yeah, so what I want is, is, is or sustainable is what I use. I want sustainable flow of value. So sustainable means humans as well. Bringing it back to the podcast, right? It means um, that if I've got a system of work that's burning people out, that's not sustainable. If mm. I've got a system of work that has high attrition because people don't like working in it, that's not sustainable. So people's happiness needs to be just as much of a um, first-class metric, if you like, or first-class yeah. operating um, consideration as money or flow or any of the other stuff. 
Okay, which is another so, evolution, yeah, or yeah, another yeah, consideration. Which is, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm aware that you have got a meeting to get to in, I, I, in 15 I, I have minutes. A, okay. Yeah, so, um, God, there's so much more I'd like to ask you. Maybe there's a part <laughs> two, because, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's many facets right, to Dan I, North. So. Well, I'm giving you loads, and I'm giving you very verbose answers as well. No, so I no, should, it's uh, been great. We've had a, a grand tour of your management philosophies and, and, your, and your background. So... Thank you very much. And before we before we leave, um, I ask this to all my guests, to you, Dan North. Yes. What does what does it mean to be human? What a really brilliant question. What does it mean to be human? Um, so we didn't get onto this. But we were talking about this uh, about faith. So I'm a Christian. I'm I, I now describe myself as a reluctant but committed Christian. <laughs> um, I, I I became a Christian by accident, uh, by researching my wife's Christian and she was going to church and, uh, well, some interesting things happened. I, so um, she asked me to come along one. She didn't usually ask me to go to church, but she said, there's this guy who's speaking who I think you'll find interesting because he's a scientist and he's a Christian. I was like, okay. And it turns out his name is uh, John Polkinghorne, uh, like Professor Sir John, uh, Reverend Professor John Polkinghorne or something. So he's a professor of, emeritus professor of nuclear physics at Cambridge, and he's a, a vicar. So he's not just a Christian, he's a qualified vicar. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's, uh, how, how does that all happen? And, he talk, and what he talked about, he said, he said two things that really kind of struck me. So the first thing he said was he applies the same critical thinking to his faith that he does to his science. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did that. I was like, really? Can you do that? Does that work? No, I'm surely not. And the second thing he said was, he says, when he goes into church, he doesn't hang up his brain at the door. I was like, I, th I thought I thought you were supposed to. I thought it was what you had to do, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I was like, oh, that's annoying. <laughs> and so, so then I started researching. I started, I wanted to find out. Um, and the phrase I use, the fairy stories that, you know, that, that my wife was being told on a Sunday morning. And annoyingly, the further I dug into it, and this is through things like Alpha Courses and some books I read, um, particularly a wonderful book by a chap called Anthony Flew. Now, Anthony Flew, in 1955, wrote a paper, an article called There Is No God, in which he argues from first principles, you know, the hardcore philosophy, that the universe, everything in it, what we see, everything observable, can be explained without recourse to a god. So you don't need to have God to be able to describe everything, you know, reality, if you like. And that's considered one of the kind of foundational papers of modern atheism. So anyway, 50 years later, it's 1985. Um, uh, sorry, 20, when was that? Yeah, it's 2005, yes, 50 years. 2005, he writes another book called There Is A God. <laughs> so great, yeah. And, and, and the cover is because it's, it's there is no God, he's crossed out no and written A above it, right? And I'd never heard of this guy. I was in uh, an airport. I was travelling. I was with ThoughtWorks. I was doing some travelling. Um, and I, I I'm going to pick up a philosophy book. I haven't read any good philosophy for a while, right? So I went to the philosophy section in Smith's in the airport. And this book, there is, there is a God. I was like, what's that doing in the philosophy section? Because Anthony Flues is famous. So I got this book. I started reading it. And I just kind of, oh. Okay, and again, it's not... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's just uh, um, it's just hardcore philosophy. It's not. There's no um, 
There's no appeal to faith or anything like that in there. And what he does is he argues, again from first principles, his, his, his motto was always, I will follow the truth wherever it leads. And that's what he says, he's always said his whole life, I'll follow the truth wherever it leads. And in 1955, the truth wherever it led, led him to there is no God. And he said something about what he wrote annoyed him. Like, he's scratched it, scratched it. It's like 50 years later, he's in his 80s. Right? And he said, you know, I'm still completely, I've got all my marbles. I'm not like fearing death and suddenly having this big epiphany about God. He said, nothing like that. He said, I just wasn't happy with the way I argued that. And there's some other stuff that I've been thinking about. And I won't spoil it, it's a great book, go read it. Uh, but he comes out of it saying, essentially saying, based on what he can understand, he believes that there needs to be some kind of supernatural creator of the universe. And the best description he's seen of that is the Christian God. So he doesn't, say, he doesn't come out and say, I'm a Christian. He says, of all the descriptions of things that could be God, the, the Christian one seems closest to what I would argue to from what I've... And I was like, that's annoying. <laughs> and so what was happening was the evidence was doing that. And I thought, well, if I'm going to say that I'm evidence-led, then at some point I had to start self-describing as a Christian. I was like, crap, <laughs> that wasn't the plan. And then uh, C.S. Lewis, who I wrote all the Narnia books and whatever, um, I didn't know this, but he famously described himself as a reluctant Christian. I discovered much later reading this book, Mere Christianity, and I was like, well, at least I'm in good company. You know? <laughs> uh, um, but so, so what does it mean to be human? I think it means to be your whole self. And so, um, and so I self-describe as a Christian. That happened in my 30s. That happened like in the last 10, 15 years. I was quite happily not right, for a really long time. And now I'm annoyingly, I can't. Uh, um, just after when Jesus himself found God. Just, right? what, was it Jesus in his 30s when he first? Uh... Well, 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 no, he was, I mean, he, was, he, was he, he started preaching. He started doing his, what's it, um, his ministry was in his 30s, yeah. Uh, um, but I, he, he, was fair, he, he knew all the way through that he was Jesus. Uh, fairly sure of that. Um, so, so I think being human is is a bunch of things. It's being your authentic self. I don't think you can switch things on and off. I think that doesn't. You can't do that congruently. Um, so, and I've noticed a change in myself uh, as part of my faith journey in terms of how I approach work and how I approach people. So there's that. Um, there's an authenticity thing. There's I think being human, there's a genuine compassion thing. I think it's important to be genuinely compassionate. So one of my uh, heroes, role models, idols, I don't know, people who I really look up to is a lady called Virginia Satir. Mm -hmm. And like so, yeah, so she, for those who don't know her, she was the first family therapist. So she was the, the, um, the founder of, so before her, you had a child psychologist and you take your broken child along to the child psychologist and they get fixed and sent home. And she said, well, okay, so, okay, we've got this child and the child's acting out or self-harming or doing whatever they're doing. I need to work with the family. And they're like, no, the family's fine. You need to fix our kid. And she said, no, she said, that behavior, and she used medical terms, she said, it's the presenting symptom of a family, of the system that is the family. So she was one of the first systems thinkers before it was called systems thinking. And so, and so she said, I need to work with the family because the child's behavior is a symptom of that system. And so we need to figure out how to change that system to affect the behavior. And so she would work with whole families. 
and there's a lovely quote. Oh, she's got loads of great quotes. But one of my favourite quotes of her is someone said to her, look, you know, you can do anything you like. You're famous, you've discovered, you've, you've founded family therapy. Why do you still do this family work? And she said, I think if I can change a family, I can change the world. I was like, wow. yeah, that's pretty cool. But she's got a bunch of, um, so they're called presuppositions or kind of foundational beliefs. And one of her foundational beliefs is everyone's trying to help. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, if you've done any life coaching or yeah. any of that kind of stuff, NLP, those sorts of schools um, are very much based on a lot of her work. So everyone's trying to help is the principle of positive intent. Yeah. So the idea is if I see you doing something just toxic or, I don't know, really kind of uh, sabotaging something, or you're not, you're trying to help. So in order for me to genuinely empathise, in order for me to genuinely meet you where you are, I need to figure out what would have to be true for me to, f- to think that that's helping. Right, where am I such a... And so, for instance... Um, sort of advanced empathy techniques. It really is. It's yeah. amazing, the stuff she does. And it's got a whole lot of models and techniques for doing this. But So uh, one example, or two examples quickly... Um, if you see someone sabotaging like one of these transformation whatever attempts well how is that helping well maybe what they're doing is they're looking at the current existing stable system and they're saying this works i don't believe your thing works i haven't seen any evidence i've just seen a whole bunch of hand wavy consultants and you know some kool-aid right i don't want to risk our organization of course i'm going to try and stop you i've tried to stop you through the official channels, and that's not working. So I'm going to try and stop you through unofficial channels. I'm trying to help. Right, I'm trying to save the organisation from your craziness. That reminds me of it. Snowden talks about embrace cynicism. Cynicism could be a good sign of an organisation. Absolutely, yeah. care about what exists. Well, the Jermaine Greer, you know, one of the one of the founding voices of modern feminism, is like banned because she has some slightly countercultural opinions, and then the. Why, why would you shut down Jermaine Greer? I don't, I don't get it, but yeah. Okay. Safety okay. versus comfort is, a, is an interesting thing I'm noodling at the moment. Yeah. There's got to be a book post on that. Yeah. Oh, no, it's all Catherine stuff. So she did a brilliant uh, she did a keynote at Craft Conference last year where she talks about um, uh, different um, mental models of, of kind of sabotage and whatever else. And... Uh, um, Three, the Dark Triad. Oh, yeah. This dark triad of these three, like uh, mm. Machiavellian um, sabotage and something else, yeah, yeah, what they are. Yeah. But they say those, and and how to counter, how to how to recognise them, how to counter them, and in that she weaves this idea of like you know psychological comfort and, and blankets rather than genuine safety, which means you feel safe to try outrageous things. Right. Okay. And to offend people and for uh, people yeah, yeah, to exactly. be taken care of when they feel yeah. offended, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. all yes. for it all to happen. Well, not offend. It's interesting because the vocabulary is really important. It's about it should be safe to challenge people, and they don't take offence. And that's the okay. difference. Is psychological safety is if I disagree with you, it's okay for me to challenge you. Right. If I don't feel safe challenging you then that's fine, you'll never have your your feelings hurt, right? Which is lovely, except we're never gonna make progress. Right. So so, so psychological safety, one of the characteristics of that is challenge, but positive, healthy challenge. Sure, but but doesn't that- And healthy conflict. But doesn't that necessarily mean you do run the risk of offending someone and someone taking offense? Yes, you do. About having a space where that's 
dealt with in some way. Well, exactly, and, and this mm. is what Google talks about when they talk, you know, they had their project, um, whatever it was, that came up with the, the single biggest factor for team success with psychological safety is you set up a team dynamic where we can challenge each other in a way that I know you're challenging an idea I have, you're not threatening my identity. Right? And if we don't set those ground rules, no one can challenge anything. Mm. Someone's going to get offended. So, but the flip side of that is you don't want the locker room culture where it's all really laddish and whatever else and people don't feel safe even you know, being congruently themselves. Right. So it's finding what, what, what is a healthy, what does healthy conflict look like um, as opposed to just kind of passive compliance, but then healthy conflict versus bullying. You know, and that's, that, that's, the, that's the fine line of psychological safety, is how do we make it so that we can exercise ideas, explore ideas, disagree on things, make progress in a way that doesn't then um, uh, deny your humanity and deny your identity and deny yeah. your, yeah, all those things. Yeah, no, I see, yeah, okay which just brought up the James Damore fiasco, oh. which maybe we could get into, but then I'm, I'm looking at the time and thinking... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we just got started on a whole bunch <laughs> yeah, of There's things. a whole bunch of stuff that could go there. Okay, uh, so presumably you do now have to go. I'm it's afraid right. I do, yes. You do, yes. So um, I will say thank you once again. Thank you for being human and bringing your whole <laughs> self to this interview. Um, Thanks, we'll Richard. put some links to your best place to find you, dannorth.net, yes. is that right? Yeah. Um, and then Tastapod on Twitter. Tastapod on Twitter. And then Dan North on LinkedIn. And Dan North on LinkedIn. Okay. Thank you very much, Fantastic. Dan North. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Cheers.